Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Wills, your host, and we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, first, we're going to start out with um, doc, uh, Dr. Travis Taylor and Brendan Fugel. We're going to be talking about the secret of the Skinwalker Ranch. Um, the premiere, the season premiere is tonight, and it's coming out. Uh, this is May 4th, and by the way, it's coming out, of course, on the History Channel. Um, and I wanted to show everyone this. It's Star Wars Day. So may the fourth be with you. And probably some of you know this, but if you if you copy that text, may the fourth be with you and put it in Google, just watch what happens. It's really fun. Check it out. Um, so I am uh, I'm happy to have uh, these two people on first. We're going to be talking for about a half hour or so, and then we're going to be getting into um other things besides the Skinwalker Ranch, we're going to be kind of bouncing around a couple of other topics. And uh, then and the second part of the show, about a half hour in, I'm going to have Mark Fiorentino. I'm trying to say his name. He's going to be up and uh, he has a very interesting theory um, that actually does involve the UFOs. We are going to be talking about that and a lot more. Skinwalker Ranch has always intrigued me right from the beginning when I started to look into this topic. And uh, this season premiere, uh, it was interesting last year. It's going to be another season of interesting things happening on the ranch, unexplained. It's, it's, uh, it's funny when I talk to people that are not even into UFOs, but they heard of, say, some paranormal or other things like that. They seem to know about the Skinwalker Ranch. I mean, a lot of people know about that just because of uh, all the strange goings on. To me, I think the portal things, uh, what happens that people are claiming and scientists are claiming also that have actually seen this portal open with a figure coming out of it. Just bizarre things happen. Uh, on our blog this week by Charles Lear, it's uh, Chili's Witted uh, UFO is the name of that. And it's all about a, um, a UFO 1948 incident that happened in Chile. And check that out. That'll be an audio blog later this week, as usual. And 
Let's see. Anything else I can think of is I do want to thank everyone that supports the show. Anyone can do that. All that information is on our website. The website's podcastufo.com. And uh, I am ready to bring in our two guests. A little tricky because we have a lot of people down below. Hey, Brandon, how are you? Hey, good to be with you. Dr. Taylor, welcome to the show. How you doing? So I have to, right off the bat, I want to ask you, um, you know, about COVID. How did this affect your filming this year when it came to the filming of the Skinwalker Ranch? Wow. Uh, Dr. Taylor's probably best to to address it, but I'll just tell you as a prelude, you know, establishing health and safety protocols, and I think more elevated health and safety protocols in order to bring out the crew from Los Angeles and really, you know, make sure that everyone was comfortable with proceeding during a historic time was something that that was unique. I, I think our program, you know, season two of The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch had to be one of the only television series being filmed this last summer in the midst of a global pandemic. So, Travis, what are your yeah. thoughts? One of the one of the big things that people don't realize is where we were in the Uinta Basin was a green zone. I mean, it's basically the middle of the desert, you know, a high plains desert. Nobody's there. And uh, so we didn't have a lot of issues per se there from COVID. Uh, you know, a lot of businesses were not completely open, you know, at the same kind of business hours. And the, uh, the Hollywood crews and the people that came in, uh, we all got everybody got tested once a week or we and we test our temperature every day and we uh a lot of the guys uh wore masks if they wanted to uh but since we were in a green zone in the desert it wasn't necessarily required um the crew though they did actually the crew always do anyway because the sand out there is so fine uh it's ah. like what cowboys do just to keep it out of their face um that must and, be hard I, on the equipment too uh yeah well the ranch is hard on the equipment in other ways and we can talk about that <laughs> too but uh uh, but i think i actually had it uh, probably as bad as anybody because i would fly home to my family in alabama on fridays and come back on sundays so i was going through the airport constantly uh during this i mean i I lived on the ranch from sunday night to friday morning and uh then i would fly home for a night at home with my family and uh the airports i I got to see the evolution of it um you know, when we first started, I was like the only person in the airports. But by the end of the summer, people were starting to uh, get back to flying. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that that whole thing has been it's been a challenge for everyone. And I just wondered, there's something playing somewhere. <laughs> if Can you hear it on this? All right. This is all just coming over my computer. Something's coming. I'm sorry. I think well, I've been hacked by the government. Walker Ranch. Yeah, welcome. Now you're an experiencer, Martin. <laughs> All right, hey, I'm shutting everything. Laugh, but you never know. We see all kind of crazy stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hearing like something else completely coming over my my uh, computer. And I'm just so glad you can't hear it. And I'll figure it out eventually what That's what's going odd. on. But but it makes it hard to concentrate. So I'm going to ask um, you a question. Either one of you can talk about this. But as far as the... Uh, the person that for the very first time is hearing about the Skinwalker Ranch, do either one of you want to take that and kind of explain um, the things that have happened? And I did have a question about the Shermans. Uh, Travis and I were talking about that off air, but I just wondered if uh, 
Well, Brandon, I didn't get yeah. a chance to ask you. Have you ever spoken to the Shermans? No, we've we've had indirect communication with the Shermans, and you know they have they have confirmed the reality of what they had experienced and have added to the narrative a little bit. But uh, I think you know, in answer to your first question, Skinwalker Ranch is a 512 acre piece of property out in the Uinta Basin that is the the most scientifically studied paranormal hotspot on the planet it has been locked down under 24 hour, you know, seven day per week, 365 days a year surveillance since 1996 when billionaire, billionaire aerospace entrepreneur Robert Bigelow acquired the property from the Sherman family after uh, having it brought to his attention that the property, for whatever reason, seemed to be the center of gravity for everything from UFO sightings to strange shape-shifting demonic uh, entities to orbs and cattle mutilation phenomena. And so Mr. Bigelow brought his team of scientists and investigators to the property, locked it down, and commenced an investigation that in 2008 became part of a Pentagon black budget uh, program studying the phenomena that ran through 2013. In 2016, I acquired the property from Mr. Bigelow, opened a new chapter, brought in a new team of, of scientists and investigators, really a multidisciplinary group of people that have been joined by Dr. Taylor. And, you know, for the first time ever, we opened the ranch up to, you know, to television cameras for the, for the purpose of, of really documenting in true unscripted fashion the day-to-day activities and scientific investigation that has been going on for over five years under my stewardship. Interesting. Well, I've talked to a a few people, uh, John Alexander and uh, people that were on site, you know, during the earlier years. And I just, I have to say something, this is really crazy, but you know what uh, happened? The thing that was playing in the background was the screener for the Skinwalker Ranch. It just started playing all on its own. I had it. I had watched it last night. It was on one of my tabs. I didn't even go there. It just started playing. You can't, I finally you can't figured make out what it was. this stuff up. You just cannot make this stuff up. I, I, yeah. I, I, I kid you not. Uh, you know, I wanted to add Amazing. something to what Brandon was just saying. Um, you bet. Sure. Uh, I, I just did a uh, uh, question answer thing on uh, online this morning. And one of the questions was, uh, is it hard to do real science out there with the required sensationalism that uh, of television production? And and I my response to that was uh, nobody on the team nor Brandon would allow for any made up sensationalism. What's going on that you see is what's happening to us when it happens. I mean, it's the cameras are just kind of following us along. Nothing is contrived. None of it is as Hollywood made up. I mean, it's literally that freaky when we're out there and the cameras were so much stuff happens. We're lucky that the cameras are pointing in the right direction when it does, because it's like, it knows that the cameras are looking over here. So something will happen over here. It's really weird how that, how that works. Oh, I've heard that. I've heard the story of when the cameras were all around the cattle and then all of a sudden one camera went out and all these things happened. I think there was a mutilate mutilation and a, cow was dropped head first or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. Well, but, the one but, thing we we don't do is break the fourth wall. So we don't really talk about the cameramen, but their cameras are always going down. The memory cards are accidentally getting erased. 
the batteries are <laughs> were, were brand new, uh, like at one second ago, and now suddenly they're they're completely dead. And the day I got exposed to radiation uh, that's shown in season one, what no, what you don't realize is all three cameras went down at that instant and wouldn't come back up for several minutes, and they filmed a lot of that with a cell phone. Oh my goodness. Well, I got to tell you so many times in the UFO phenomenon in the world, I speak to people that have had cameras with full batteries, phones with full batteries, everything goes dead and fully charged. And uh, yeah, there's something going on. That's for sure. And so, so many things happen there. And I know there was a long period of time, Brandon, before you actually bought the place where nothing was happening. It was just kind of quiet. Uh, would you say that that's changed? It's kind of woken up. Do you think it has a little? I don't know that it ever really went away, to be honest. I think it it, it really depends on the the participants to a degree. I mean, the first phase of our investigation really was observational science driven, to be honest, as we as we kind of established the scientific platforms, the surveillance systems. But, you know, within the first 30 to 60 days of my stewardship, ownership of the property, you know, things started popping up. I mean, our, our drone surveyor captured images in broad daylight in the middle of the day of what can only be described as UFO craft above the property that, uh, that, that really don't correlate with any conventional explanation. And, you know, the, the high strangeness has only continued and increased in frequency. So I, I, I'm not sure that the phenomena ever really went away. I think for whatever reason, uh, Mr. Bigelow's focus, it shifted. And, you know, obviously he has a, a quite an exciting enterprise in, in Las Vegas with Bigelow Aerospace. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, it was time for a new chapter to be opened relative to this, this intriguing property. I'd point something else out too. Uh, uh, Brandon's principal investigator, Eric Bard, uh, was capturing data for three years before I ever got out there. And one man cannot go through three years of 24, 7, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 cameras always going and find everything. Eric has giga, giga terabytes, Googleplexes of data stored away that he still hasn't been able to go all the way through. So we, you know, who knows what the, the, the sensors have caught that we just haven't found yet. It's kind of like the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. How they had all that data for years and they had no idea what was in it. And they still don't have it all crunched yet. Well, I think we're going to always be finding stuff in that footage that, that Brandon's team started with, uh, you know, in 2016 through now. And even the stuff that we've been capturing, we haven't been able to go through all of it either. It's just too much data for, you know, it's going to take some kind of supercomputer to do it. Uh, would either one of you, like if you were told you had to stay there alone for a week, well, would either one of you be? <laughs> You've done it. Travis, Dr. Taylor's actually lived on the property for months at a time, really, you know, for the, you know, the past several seasons of filming. And so he's, yeah, I don't know that other than, you know, Eric Bard and, uh, no, our, I'm our sorry. I, I meant this alone. If you were oh. all alone, no one else. That's what oh. I meant. Help. Would you be uncomfortable completely alone there? Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, because it's unsafe. We don't know what would happen. In fact, there's a safety protocol. Brandon doesn't let let you go out there alone. Uh, I see. You have to do a buddy system. Uh, so, I got it. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, you might somebody might be there for an hour or so at the most because they're waiting at the gate for someone or something. But uh, the, you don't want to be there because what if something happens? I'm not going to give you a spoiler, but there are things that happen that can cause a person to become catatonic. And, mm-hmm. and you don't know or are at least unclear of their faculties. And they could do something that hurts themselves. And without a buddy system in a situation like that, or if they got bit by a snake or a mountain lion yeah. attacked them. You know, I mean, it's, it is a ranch in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what about um, the, the one thing I imagine is probably a real pain in the neck, and it's good to get the word out there, is all the people that try to get there and try to get onto the property. I'm sure it's a, I'm sure it's a major headache. Yeah. It, yeah. It, at That's a nightmare room. for Dragon. <laughs> yeah. Dragon and Caleb have had to call law enforcement in, and we've had a number of people detained that have, you know, ignorantly tried to enter the property, and they don't understand the risk that they are taking when 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 entering the property. But you know, truly bad things happen. We're dealing with forces that we we just don't understand. You know, these acute medical episodes that have occurred uh, are real. This is a dangerous place. And, you know, the the security protocols that are in place are, you know, interestingly, you know, just as much there to to help protect the uh, the ignorant and the the would be, you know, trespasser that 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 thinks that it's that it's clever to try to get a photo or try to come on the property. They just have no idea what they're dealing with. Yeah. And and it's a bad idea all together. We're doing a scientific investigation and there are many times where we've had lasers for example that we were doing experiments with that would burn your eyeballs out if you walked across where you weren't supposed to be you know we mm-hmm. we were flying drones around that that could have caused injury if you got in in a, in a spot where you shouldn't be you know there who knows what the experiment might be that we're performing and if we don't know you're there we can't keep you safe you know we've launched rockets that are very powerful rockets that would definitely harm somebody if they wandered in in the wrong place at the wrong time so I tell people it's just a bad idea. Don't try to sneak on the ranch because you think it's cool. It's a, just a bad idea. Yeah. Now, if you, you know, you think of um, the paranormal or whatever it is that is happening there doesn't have borders. Has anyone explored the outer region of the property to see how far people have reported things, how far around the property are things happening besides right there? You bet. We, we've cataloged reports from the entire Uinta Basin. Uh, you know, there's a sister property where we've been conducting a little bit of an investigation and have, you know, a close collaboration with um, that that also has has had a history. But I, I will say this: for whatever reason, there is a high frequency of high strangeness and incidents and a diversity of phenomena on yeah. this property, uh, and, and that 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 is at a multiplier i mean it's it's at a multiple uh, beyond what the surrounding area has uh, has has experienced for whatever reason yeah so if you and look at the ranch it is like pretty much dead center at the bottom of the bowl that is the uinta basin and maybe that's for some reason it's the focus of all of the high strangeness uh but yeah you you got to believe that a barbed wire fence on the edge of the 500 acre ranch isn't going to stop something that uh, you know people claim as you know UFOs or whatever or, or portals opening up. I don't think a barbed wire fence is going to do that any good. So 
I'm, yeah. We hear people, they bring us videos and pictures and stuff all the time uh, from Roosevelt all the way down to Vernal and to other places that are 5 to 20, 30, 40, 50 miles away. Uh, but it seems like the ranch is the nexus of it. Right. Wow. That's amazing. So, so Brandon, um, the property, um, you acquired this from Bigelow. Had you heard about this for a long time and it sparked your interest and you wanted to, what, what made you decide to actually, uh, I imagine it wasn't inexpensive and I imagine it came with a lot of stories when you went to buy this. So what, what prompted you to reach out for this property or was, did someone approach you? Yeah, I, I was approached. I, I would have never imagined in a million years acquiring yeah. a property like this, let alone the infamous Skinwalker Ranch. You know, I, I had read the book, I think, back in 2006, 2007. In fact, I saw it at Barnes & Noble, uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker, that was uh, written by, you know, Dr. Colm Kelleher and George Knapp, the the investigative journalist out of Las Vegas that really broke the big story on on – the scientific investigation. And, but I can honestly say I read the book in a weekend, put it down and really didn't revisit the property or any interest in the ranch until really I was, I was contacted by uh, several of Mr. Bigelow's science advisors that I had uh, actually interacted with a decade ago on a, on a, a project, a research project in Utah. And, Unbeknownst to me, they were, you know, acting as advisors to Mr. Bigelow and and asked if I would be willing to take a meeting uh, to discuss a potential joint venture or acquisition as uh, as Mr. Bigelow was was very much uh, deeply entrenched with the space habitats program, you know, getting his his inflatable uh, modules up on the International Space Station and frankly, beyond, you know, ultimately, you know, they they intend to to put his his uh, real estate development technology on on the moon and Mars, and he's I think he's still the only private entrepreneur that has his own space stations in orbit. Is that true, Travis? I- yeah. Well, there uh, uh, right now the uh, habitat is attached to the space station, International Space Station. He's putting one up that will be a free flyer, his own. But that yeah, yeah that's he's the only one building the hotel in space, so to speak. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I was intrigued when they reached out to me and said, I, you know, being in Utah, I thought it was, it was interesting. Uh, you know, I, I can access the property by way of, you know, helicopter or jet a little bit easier than other people since I use aviation with my commercial real estate practice. And, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, we ended up meeting and, and uh, it led to, to my acquisition. I, I bought it as a skeptic. I, in full disclosure, uh, you know, stated that I'd, I'd never seen a UFO or a ghost or an orb or anything of the sort. And I I felt that there was a 95% chance that there was a natural prosaic explanation for what had been reported out there. And I intended to bring my own multidisciplinary team to this ranch, to this problem set, if you will, to, to see if there was any truth to the claims. And so I, 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 I entered the property as a healthy skeptic, and uh, I would have never imagined uh, if you would have if you would have told me, you know, six years ago uh, that I that I would ultimately be the owner of this this very <laughs> unique piece of property. I 
I wouldn't have believed you. It's so far outside of the realm of my conventional business activities on a day-to-day basis that I think it still baffles those who, uh, who are doing business with me on a, on, on an hourly basis. It's it's outside the realm of your uh, day-to-day thought process. I mean, we, I know uh, the first time I met you guys, I told you, I thought you were all crazy. Right. And then, and then, you know, a few weeks after being there, you know, I walk out of one of the spots on the property and say, I guess I'm crazy too, because (laughs) it just does that to you. I mean, you see things that you would think you would never see in your life and you thought they were just tails around the campfire. And, and it's the craziest thing you can imagine. Yeah. P- people people ask all the time, are you a believer now? Do you believe? And I, I tell people, no, I, I'm an experiencer. I know. Yeah. I know yeah. that something is going on. I've seen it with my own eyes. I can't unsee yeah. this stuff. Yeah. I and and it's just not it's not just me. I mean, I've had multiple witnesses standing with me. Yeah, yeah, same thing with Dr. Taylor. He's been sitting there with, I mean, as many as, you know, 15, 20 personnel yeah. and crew members that are witnessing the phenomena. And scientific know. instruments all happening at the same time. Everything measuring it. I mean, you can't tell me that it didn't happen. We've yeah. got multiple scientific instruments looking at multiple phenomenologies and camera and people seeing it all at once. I mean, it happened. It's something real. I don't know what. Yeah, that, that's what I'd like to ask you. And I know when you're talking science, no one ever likes to speculate in science. But I'm going to ask you this, um, Dr. Taylor. Um, if you had to make um, a speculative guess, guess on what is actually going on there, have you thought of theories? Oh, well, you can come up with hypotheses and things all day long, and it's fun speculation, but... The key is, and one thing I, Eric and I just drive home on this, is you have to follow the scientific method with this. And if it's not repeatable, if it's not something you can experiment or verify, then it, it's no good to anybody. So if I say, oh, it might be an alien spacecraft uh, buried under the ground. Well, if I can't do an experiment to look and see if there's an alien spacecraft buried, uh, then it does me no good. People say, oh, well, no, you didn't dig deep enough. It's two miles deep. Well, th- that does me no good. That's like saying it's magic because I can't find it. I can't do an experiment to do that. So what we do is look for phenomenologies that we can test and repeat. And let me tell you, this season on uh, Secret of Skinwalker Ranch is the first time that we've now done a couple of different experiments on two different occasions and got repeatable, somewhat repeatable results. Uh, and, and I think it's an amazing thing. It tells us there's something here, and we're beginning to – I'm not going to say figure out how to turn it on, but we're beginning to at least figure out how to observe it. Yeah, I was I was reading a an interview that Linda Moulton Howe did with the Sherman, uh, Mr. Sherman, back in 1996, and it was talking. He was talking about seeing like a box come out of a box, a box like floating object, and then he also they also talked about these things coming out of the portals. Um, and, and it's such a bizarre thing and, and hard to imagine uh, what could possibly be going on. And I know there's other things, you know, the large animals and the all these other type of things that have happened. The things moved and all that. Has anyone ever like thrown the idea of the possibility of something like interdimensional or anything like that? Has that ever been a topic? 
Oh yeah, we you know we've got a whiteboard and a chalkboard around there, and we sit around after all the camera guys go home, and we draw out ideas. So you know, if it's a wormhole connected to universes, what would happen? Would we get a signal like this? But if you can't test it again, it's just fun, right? And, and so, sure, there could be all sorts that we've got uh, local religious leaders from the various uh, native tribes telling us about. Uh, mythologies of, of, of beings that come through there and all sorts of things. And so people, I think people have observed things in this area for a long time and we're just right. now trying to get a handle on it. Yeah. Martin, yeah. I'm asked all the time if I, whether I believe this is, this is, uh, you know, extraterrestrial in nature, is it interdimensional or is it spiritual? You know, are we mm-hmm. dealing with angels and demons and, you know, the honest answer at this point, based on all of the data and the observations, is we could very well be seeing all of the above. Yeah, yeah, exhibited. Yeah, right, right. Uh, that just reminded me that next week I have uh, Louis Elizondo uh, from the yeah. Pentagon uh, team on this uh, podcast for the full two-hour show, and I heard him in another interview say that he was told by his superior that. Uh, this is kind of a spoiler alert because I'm going to ask him about it next week, but there was some type of demonic connection, which I thought was really, really bizarre. And it sounded to me like more of an opinion than um, something that could be factual. That's come out of a couple of different papers, uh, some from Eric Davis, some from the other uh, NIDS and Bass guys that had uh, done some of the ATIP work when Lou was there. Uh, All of those are speculations. And, and opinions, there was even a politician that won't, that was more inclined to believe in, in uh, demons and angels. And so you can imagine that they skewed it such that it would continue to get funded, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying it was unethical. I'm just saying that, that they would say, well, we don't know it could be this, right? Uh, well, like, right. like Brandon just said, we don't have enough evidence to tell you what it is, but it's so scattered and so varying, it could be all of it or none well, of it. Unless angels and or demons it, right. are flying, yeah. yeah. Unless angels and demons are are piloting flying saucers and unidentified <laughs> objects, I I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, you never know. <laughs> you never know. Um, so, uh, Travis, I'd like to take a little little uh, jag here and talk about your book that you wrote. And um, let's see. I know you can bring the title up because it's right behind you. Can you grab your little poster to the oh, book? It might be, and, it might be uh, easier just do this. Oh, there you go. Uh, alien invasion and um, let's see the ultimate survival guide. Uh, so I, I had, I had a listener just five minutes before I connected with you said, Hey, ask Travis, you know, can you break that down quickly on uh, what, what would we do in a situation like that? Yeah. So the book was based on about uh, three or four years of actual research on what we would do seriously from a military uh, and civil aspect if we were invaded by uh, an alien force and we looked at all sorts of different types of invasions but if you the one that was most fun to play with was what if they were a uh like a independence day kind of force comes here with all their their soldiers and they attack and they're going to take our planet and use it for whatever don't care about us and the we ran something like 147 uh, computer uh, scenarios where you have red versus blue forces and where we're, of course, the blue and they're the red forces. And they had force multipliers with shields and ray guns and, and teleporters and all that. And the only situation that we didn't pretty much become extinct within the first few hours uh, was if we managed to dig in and have enough survivors 
Uh, and then we put uh, every fertile female uh, on fertility drugs, uh, having, you know, pregnant with triplets and every male old, like 12 years and older in the fighting and every female who wasn't um, uh, fertile was fighting also. And it took something like 40 years in a, um, like an Afghan Soviet war type situation, a scenario for humanity to make it cumbersome enough for the aliens to pack up and leave. Uh, you know, just, uh, it was a, a nuisance kind of thing. But again, that that's only one out of like a hundred and something scenarios we came up with. There's infinite numbers of scenarios, but the idea is we're not prepared. We can't even get to low earth orbit without taking a month to get ready to do it. You know, our space suits are like balloons that we're inside of. We don't have Iron Man suits. We don't have ray guns and infinite uh, magazine uh, firearms and, uh, you know, you, you name it, we don't have it. We're not prepared for it. And just think how bad a, an earthquake or a, a tornado or a hurricane affects our civil defense. Uh, you know, if we had a, a huge onslaught alien invasion, our civil mechanisms would just completely collapse. And that's sort of the, the not to be dystopian, We what we offer as a solution is we need a, an organization now uh, to be looking into what, science and technology and infrastructure pieces do we need to be adding that would protect us from things like an incoming asteroid, you know, uh, super weather outbreaks, uh, things like that. And it would help us in the event of something intelligently directed. Well, wow. That's, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. And so we're right at the end. I, I, I appreciate you guys spending a little extra time and, uh, just make I sure wish you, you say, turn in, tune in to History Channel tonight and watch the Secret of Skinwalker Ranch premiere, right? That's right. It's 10 o'clock, 9 central, right? On uh, the I History Channel. Right. Yep. Yeah. Right. Thanks just, so much. That, that's just yeah. tonight for the premiere. I think for the, the weeks to come, I think it, it shifts into the the uh, uh, into an hour earlier position, into the same position of uh, Oak Island. Yeah. Yeah. So, Oh, I see. Just one quick question for you, Brandon. Any regrets buying the property? Uh, in general, no. I mean, I, I'm, I think this could very well be the greatest science project of our time, and I don't regret it. I, 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 my whole world has been changed. My worldview and my perception of what is reality, yeah, what is real, has been turned upside down by what I have witnessed and what the team has recorded and witnessed. And we're talking hard data um, that we continue to to gather regarding the diversity of phenomena out there. And I no, I, I think we're just getting warmed up and just scratching yeah. the surface. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully everyone will stay safe and uh, nothing dramatic will happen. But it's it's really very interesting. That place is so intriguing. And thank you both so much and good luck with this season and hope you make it back for season three. Hey, thanks ah. for having us. Thank All right. So okay. Take care. All right. We'll be right back with our other guests coming right up. Mark Fion, Fion, help me. Fiorentino. Fiorentino. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hello. Thank you for having me. You bet. Um, and thank you very much. And thanks for uh, uh, hanging in there a little extra time. 
Now I can see that I have some type of uh, phenomenon. It must have to do with Skinwalker Ranch um, <laughs> with my camera exactly. is going bright and dim, bright and dim. Yeah, and I'm that. wondering if I can get um, some lights off. Maybe that might help a little bit. I don't understand what's happening. But anyway, there thanks so much for uh, for uh, joining us again. And thank you for being patient. And uh, let's see. Uh, let's hear a little bit about yourself. Uh, first of all, um, I understand that uh, from a very early age, you and you were very intrigued with um, Albert Einstein. And I just wanted to find out a little bit um, about your background and what got you uh, interested in in uh, researching the topics you've done. Sure. It's, it's a lifetime of experiences. It's hard to go through them all, but it started with that one instance with uh, while I was in catechism school at the age of 10, where they asked us to go, the children to ask, you know, they asked us, you know, uh, why don't you all report on a, um, a saint that's born on your birthday? So uh, I went home to look and in 1965, there was no internet. There was, you know, it was really hard to look up, do a search for something of that nature you know, you know, you asked your parents and uh, I did a little of that and, you know, I had Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, and uh, what I wound up doing is I just went to the calendar that was hanging in our kitchen and looked on my birthday, which is March 14th, and found that Albert Einstein was born on that birthday. So, wow. Yeah. I- Ringo, <laughs> Ringo stars on my birthday. That's as good as I got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that's who I um uh, I, I did the report on, I guess. I, I can't actually remember doing the report, but I remember researching, opening the encyclopedia, reading about Albert Einstein, and in the process, um, there was a section that talked about the unified field theory. And when I read that, that that really changed my life because I thought this thing, this makes more sense than anything I've ever heard. And it's kind of odd that I would think that at the age of 10, but still it struck me uh, very deeply, profoundly. And it started a lifetime interest in science, which eventually, as I got older, you know, into the teen years, I got into interested in in things about UFOs. Because I thought if anybody knows about the unified field theory and how it works, obviously is people who are coming from other planets, they must have discovered a way to fly faster than the speed of light. Even back then, I knew that the speed of light wasn't really going to be fast enough to get us anywhere. So I would read about UFOs and try to understand the technology, the anti-gravity technology. And uh, then later on in life, I I achieved some things um, at where I worked, um, you know, some certain successes in technology and uh, helping a student one time with a math problem in which, in this particular case, a finite mathematics problem, and I helped them solve and discover a new formula. And when he told his professor, he showed him, hey, we, this guy figured it out on, one night at home working on his computer. <laughs> he, he gave me the, he showed me the example he was working on. He had solved it in uh, the second, third, and fourth dimension. But this thing would go on evolving into all the dimensions. And when I say dimensions, I mean powers of two, um, modulo two mathematics. And uh, I looked at his equation that he had so far. And as soon as I looked at it, I saw 
a pattern in the equation itself, a geometry forming, which I guess he just didn't see. So I went home and I said, I can solve these other dimensions, the fifth, sixth, whatever, and I'll show you if I can figure it out how to to solve for any dimension. And um, sure enough, I went home, I put a little program together to test the, the new formulas, make sure that they outputted what he was looking for, which was every number in that dimension that's possible. No particular order, but it doesn't repeat until the very end. So that was very easily done. I did the fifth in about an hour, a little over an hour. Then each dimension thereafter, which goes up higher and higher uh, in numbers, (laughs) doubling uh, every time by a power of two, um, it it gets to be a very long equation and um, because it has so many permutations. So I was able to solve the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. I says, I, well, I could see the pattern here. The the actual formula switches in this geometry. It's symmetrical as it grows. So I showed him that, and he said, oh, my God, I could, <laughs> you, you, you got it. So he went back to his professor, and his professor told him that, that your friend has discovered new math. This is not in any book anywhere. And... That's basically the day, and was around 1993 or so, that I decided to to seriously try and in an attempt to do what has now become the theory of super relativity, which is now the unification of electromagnetism to gravity, which is what Einstein was working on. So I decided, hey, if I could do new math like Newton and Einstein, well, maybe I got a shot, and that's how I got into it. And all those years, I kept studying and reading about it. It's a hobby mainly, uh, but it was never off of my mind. Now, let's uh, for the person that's not skilled in a lot of what you were talking about, and uh, and that includes me, <laughs> um, when it comes to like these mathematical equations and things like that. First of all, do you have you saying it's a hobby, but do you have like a, a math background? No, no, that's. That's the weird, obscure, strange thing about this. I'm not even particularly that good at math. I mean, I, I, I took up, uh, up to trigonometry in school. I liked it. I think it's interesting. I just look at it. All math is is a language that describes reality. Things don't happen because of math. Math describes things about how they happen. And that's the way I used it. If you're going to derive equations, you have to have a model, a model in your mind, something that you're imagining how it works. And then you do the math from that model. That's what Einstein did. And I followed that path. And so my my math is very specialized. And I've, I've hired physicists to train me in the background when I, you know, work with a formula, we, I have them help me derive it. So I understand exactly what it means. That's the key to understanding math and formulas. And so for my project, the the work I'm doing now, I'm actually writing up uh, a document, uh, a research paper to submit to uh, journals and stuff at this point. I have to do that as a protect my ideas and 
and so forth. I have everything kind of loosely put together in the book, but not as formal as um, what I'm doing right now, which I'm going through the math and explaining it step by step. The math that I do predicts particle masses, which has really never been done before. And and I I got it to work. So I'm shaking my head thinking, how the, how the heck do you keep doing this? It, it, it mystifies me, but I do have enough information and understanding in my brain to, to pull it off somehow. And I'm just going with it. I'm just, it's like an adventure at this point. And what are, uh, I mean, these, uh, uh, well, I would assume would be some type of breakthroughs or whatever, seems like would be profound in the world for its uh, possibilities and uses. And so do you see something going in that direction? Yeah, the main thrust of this is to get to anti-gravity. How I got to anti-gravity was following Einstein's path, uh, where basically electromagnetism and gravity emerge as aspects of a single fundamental field. That's the unified field theory description. I worked on that. If you want to understand anti-gravity, you better understand gravity. And so I decided to, to figure it out, to work it out and understand it. And all really gravity is, according to my theory and, and what Einstein was working on, it's really a contraction of space. That's what forms the gravitational field. It's, it's not really that hard for anybody to comprehend, but it's almost blasphemous to say that to some physicists. They get annoyed at that idea. Uh, of thinking of space as a real physical thing. And in my book, I, I prove it beyond any shadow of a doubt. The ether exists. Space is a, a real physical thing. It's a quasi-elastic solid. And um, and I build from that. So, yeah, what, what I get to eventually is anti-gravity, and that's very useful for um, mankind. And I want to help mankind discover anti-gravity so i put uh, a chapter in the book i think it's the last chapter where i i describe experiments we can do to prove that magnetism is what will cause anti-gravity and i mean powerful magnetic fields that have been noticed around ufos for decades so that was a link i made when i was a kid i said hey these guys are going out with magnometers that measures magnetic fields. How come the air force is taking magnometers to uh, UFO landing sites? They must know something. And I kept following that. Hmm. And over and over again, I found UFO in, uh, uh, reports where people are like a physicist was looking at one through a uh, polarized lens and they could see that there was bands of polarized light coming off of the UFO. That only happens with intense magnetic fields. Another uh, person in Belgium, uh, the Belgium Triangle UFO, took a photograph. This was back before digital cam cameras. So this camera had the emulsion in it. And he was pretty close. A physicist analyzed that photograph and found that the emulsion was magnetized. Clear evidence that that UFO is putting out a huge uh, magnetic field. So what am I doing now? I'm trying to link that into the scientific realm, and I will eventually 
bring that uh, uh, presentation forward that I've already created and putting the final touches on now, uh, working with some animations and graphics and stuff to help people visualize. Pictures worth a thousand words. And um, that is the direction I'm going to. I wanna bring anti-gravity, not only anti-gravity, because that's really not enough to, to get us to other planets. We need to be able to break the light speed barrier and the solution for that is also in my book. And the same technique that you use to create an anti-gravity field creates something called a slip wave. And the slip wave is um, a, um, a gradient magnetic field that allows propulsion along with um, anti-gravity effects. But not only that, but it biases the space in and around the spaceship so that you can break the light speed barrier. And how does it do that? Well, quite simply, thanks to James Clerk Maxwell, we discovered that the speed of light is equal to one over the square root of permittivity times permeability. What does that all mean? It means space has properties, permeability and perm permittivity. If you reduce those, and you can do this with a magnetic field, by stretching space, thinning it out, those two properties reduce, then the speed of light maximum value changes. So as you reduce it more and more, you can go any speed beyond the speed of light you want, all the way up to infinitely fast, which I don't recommend. But that's how you get to other star systems. You don't go at the speed of light. You don't go eight times like in Star Trek. That's ridiculously slow. You go 50,000 times the speed of light. You're there in minutes. If you're going to Proxima Centauri, 4.2 light years away, you can get there in a half an hour going <laughs> at 50 or 60 or 70,000 times the speed of light. And that's what we have to do in order to get to other planets, colonize them, just in case something goes wrong here on planet Earth. So you think this, you're, you're thinking this, technology or whatever can be, uh, well, let's say the physics can be discovered. I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, yeah. Uh, this, the, you know, it does no good just to talk about this stuff and not, I have to somehow, some way convince people in authority, uh, scientists, <laughs> that anti-gravity does exist. They have to take it out of their mind and think, oh, that's science fiction. No, that's going to be science real. That's the way the normal world is going to be in the future. And, and so we're going to have to move forward here. We're going to have to discover it. I'm going to help make that happen by putting uh, the evidence in my book, or not just in my book, but on, on this paper. I'm going to demonstrate how gravity is formed, which has never been done, which was what Einstein was working on. And his path and his way was the right path. And I have him to thank, uh, along with James Clerk Maxwell, Newton, uh, Faraday, and Hendrik Antoon Lorenz. These five were the key people that helped me put this over the top, so to speak. So, yeah, it, it's important that we discover anti-gravity for all of Earth. And it's not just you know, a nice, fun thing that we can you know, make hovercraft and go to Tahiti in 15 minutes, which we will be able to do. But uh, um, it's to getting to other planets. It's colonizing. We could we can easily set up 
something on Mars because we could get to Mars in less than 15 minutes. And, you know, you could start transporting materials there and, and terraforming or doing whatever you want. And, and that'll be our, you know, our, our first base that's away from the Earth other than the moon. And Well, uh, um, sorry. Yeah. Uh, there, yeah. Uh, you know, it just seems to me you always hear about the massive, massive amounts of energy that it would take for this. And um, I do have a question up on the screen. But before we answer that question, um, what is your answer to that? I mean, that's the number one thing that um, a skeptic will say that we can't possibly be visited by UFOs that are extraterrestrial because it would take way too much energy for any type of craft to get here. And how do you answer that? Yeah, that's if you use the Lorenz transformation, special relativity, uh, it says in there, as you approach, as you approach the speed of light, it takes more and more energy to push your spacecraft forward. That's a special case. And what I'm saying in my book is that special relativity needs to be extended. It's a set of equations that work for a space that is not biased. What I'm talking about is going right to the foundation and enabling us to use this magnetic field technology, high magnetic field technology, to change to the Lorenz transformations, basically, by, by changing the way we move matter through space. Um, that's where the, the problem is. As you accelerate, for you know, using normal rockets or whatever to go in, it takes more and more energy. And as you approach the speed of light, the spaceship is interacting with the space itself. And it's got like an inertial thing going on as your mass is increasing toward infinity. So it takes an infinite amount of energy to push you forward and you can't break the light speed barrier. But that's because the space hasn't been biased. It hasn't been bent in a way that allows you to break the light speed barrier. And in so doing, you don't need you know, huge amounts of energy. You need a lot. You need a lot of current going through superconductor coils to make the magnetic fields. But you break the inertia resistance. You break, you don't break it. You, you enhance the whole system so that it's not necessary to have enormous amounts of, you know, energy to go beyond the speed. You're not using rockets. You're using a bending of space, what I call an inverse hyperbolic field. Gravity is a hyperbolic field. And, and an inverse one is one that bows out. And you want to bow, bow out the back end of your ship. So space is pushing you through it. And, and so there's no, um, there's no resistance to your motion uh, because you have reduced permittivity and permeability. So that's how you break the, the light speed barrier and you don't, and you're not required to have massive amounts of energy to do this. It, it still takes a lot, but a magnetic field is much stronger than the gravitational field. So um, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's explained in my book in great detail, but you have to buy a space in such a way that the Lorenz transformations, which are all a part of special relativity, no longer apply. Uh, there's a new set of equations that has to be added to that 
which deals with the cause of motion. And what you're doing is you're what we're doing with this super powerful spacecraft with magnetic fields is we're changing the rules of space. We're changing the laws of special relativity with the new sets of mathematics that will come about as a result of the discovery that magnetism can, in fact, enable us to break the light speed barrier. Very good. Well, we're going to go into a break. And just before we go in, for those of you on YouTube, this is a little clip of the last time that I actually saw uh, Stanton Friedman. I went up and visited him right after he retired. So I just thought I'd play a nice little clip during the uh, three-minute break um, that we have to take over at KGRA Radio. And we'll be back right after these messages over at KGRA Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much. And this show is a tribute to you. Um, it's got our last show together, and I think it's been about 10 times that we've... Uh, uh, it's we've been a lot. I, I yeah. don't keep track of these things. Yeah, I know you can't. Uh, if you had to keep track of... I need a secretary, and I don't have one. <laughs> right, right, right. So, Stan, you started back in... What year was it you started? I read Ed Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, in 1958. And that was only because... I was ordering books from Marlboro Books. I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping. <laughs> and there was a Ruppelt's book, and it was marked down to $1.99 or something. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't going to cost me anything because otherwise I would have had to pay shipping because for the rest of the order, and that was a lot more than $1.99. So that got me started. I didn't get my first lecture. I'm a little slow on the draw. As a nuclear physicist, you have to be careful what you say. Sure. People expect you to be factual, you know. Yeah. And so I didn't get my first lecture until 1967. And I didn't go full-time, really, until uh, about 1978 or so. No, not, not, not that late. But there were a lot of years of speaking before I went full-time. The, the problem was that I worked in a how will I put it, uh, a volatile industry, advanced nuclear propulsion sort of things. Uh, I worked on nuclear airplanes for General Electric. It wasn't a small program. In 1958, we spent $100 million. Wow. We employed 3,400 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. This wasn't six professors sitting around the table, you know. Uh, I worked for uh, the most exciting thing in my professional career, if you will, was working for Westinghouse Astro Nuclear Lab when we tested the NRX A6 nuclear rocket reactor propulsion system out at the nuclear test site, not far from Area 51. You know. <laughs> the thing was this big. Power level was 1,100 megawatts. I hate uh, to pay that electric bill. Uh, yeah. Uh, that, that was exciting. We listened the test was done out in Nevada, but we were back in uh, Pennsylvania. And we were listening. Five minutes elapsed, nominal temperature and pressure in 10 minutes. We had no idea how long the thing would last. Nobody had ever done this before. Uh, the exhaust temperature, liquid hydrogen in cold, very cold, and out at 4,000 degrees. That's hot. Amazing. Uh, you know, guess jet, jet engines usually 1800 or something like that. All right. I'm back uh, with my guest tonight. Um, and we're talking about um, all kinds of things. And up in the chat room, there was a question I want to post back there again for our guest. 
and trying to find it. Uh, the chats move along pretty fast here. Um, and I don't know if you read it or uh, let me see if I can find it though. I had it up once I should be able to find it. Um, but anyway, there, I believe this is it. Okay. What about the expansion of space being gravity opposite? Is that something that, does that make any sense to you? That statement? That's exactly right. That's what I call the inverse hyperbolic field. It's the expansion of space. The, clearly, in, in, in my book, I point out with many documents, many things, statements coming from Einstein that he concluded that, <laughs> that basically space is contracted. And there's a passage in Amir D. Excel's book titled God's Equation, where he comes up with the mental idea that describes it, you know, he's getting the model to how to create a gravitational field. And he says in his book, Einstein followed the line of reasoning that began with his happiest thought of his life. Still at the Swiss patent office, he conducted one of his famous thought experiments. Einstein imagined a circle spinning in space. The center of the circle did not move, but its circumference was moving quickly in a circular direction. Einstein compared what happens in several reference frames, a standard tool he had used in developing the special theory of relativity. He concluded using his special relativity that the boundary of the disk contracted as it spun. So what, what I'm saying here is that Einstein worked it out in his mind, a way to mechanically cause space to contract. And if you, instead of using a disk, if you use particles that do the same type type of motion, which is accelerated, you can make space contract. So that's what his happiest thought was. There was a force acting on the circle at the boundary, the centrifugal force, and its action was analogous to that of the gravitational force. But that same contraction that affected the outer circle left the diameter unchanged. Thus, Einstein concluded in a way that surprised even him, the ratio of the circle to the diameter was no longer pi. He deduced that in the presence of a gravitational force or field, the geometry of space was non-Euclidean. It was bent. It was contracting inwards. And then he built the general relativity theory equations from that model, which he knew had something to do with acceleration, but he never really worked out that part or inertia, which I have done in my book. I linked inertia, gravity, and mass as being all being caused by the same mechanical motion. So anti-gravity, you have to do the opposite. You have to use somehow, you got to use some kind of particles, but you got to get them to move in a non-accelerated way through wire electrons, which create just the magnetic field because magnetic fields only happen when charges move. Electrons are charges. So if we get those to move in a wire, it's more or less a linear path, uh, much less, much less accelerate. It really doesn't generate much mass, but it generates a lot of magnetism. And magnetism is a rotation of space. And when you twist something, if you imagine, you know, you're twisting silly pulley and you keep twisting, it gets thinner, thinner. That's what happens with space. So what you want to do to make space bulge out, you have to make it thinner. You have to stretch it. And that's what the magnetic field does. 
And when you do that, you change all the rules about going through that space. And and so exactly true. Uh, space uh, anti gravity is a um, an expansion of space, and I you know I say that in the book in several places, especially toward the end of the book. Here's a, a comment from Joe. Uh, my understanding is that scientists do not understand gravity at all. We're we are still speculating as how and what it is. I, I think that's correct, isn't it? Yes, that's that's true. Right now, that's where we're at. That's what I'm trying to push us beyond. Uh, a truly evolved species understands the unified field theory. They understand uh, the theory of everything. They've solved that problem. So you have to understand gravity. And gravity has eluded scientists, all of them, up to this point, because they keep trying to uh, quantize it, trying to make it somehow uh, a particle-to-particle interaction that's not the right model. That's why they failed over 26 times to try to get gravity to go into the standard model. It's not about a particle-to-particle interaction. It's about a particle-to-space interaction. So since mainstream science still thinks that space is made of nothing, a void, uh, completely empty, they, they don't entertain the idea of making it a particle-to-space interaction and that the space itself is a continuous object, not a quantized object. It's not a, a field of particles. It's a continuous material. And, and the forces of magnetism and electrostatic fields and gravity are all just different types of a bending of that uh, continuous material, that medium, which is was called the ether back in the early 1900s. When you say continuous... Is that inferring that space is infinite in your mind? Um, If you get into the bigger picture, and this goes into talking with people who have had near-death experiences and so forth, and when you get, you're you're starting to get, when you talk about infinity, you're going in the God direction. And I think, yeah, that space is, goes beyond our galaxy, of course, beyond all the galaxies in our universe. There's other universes that are probably located at immense distances from us that we, you know, we can't ever really see with another telescope, but there are probably infinite numbers of other universes. So space is going to go on for infinity because can anybody really figure out why it shouldn't be? I, I can't. I mean, I've thought about it, and I can't, uh, when you go to uh, questions of eternity and uh, eternal and infinity, you can never get to the edge of that thing, because it's infinite. So I would have to say that space is going to turn out to be an infinite object. Yeah, um, I've I've talked to that with um, an astrophysicist before, you know, like, um, if there is an end to space, what is it, a wall or, or type of thing? And he said, well, it's it's kind of like a balloon, like the outside of a balloon or something. I can't remember how he exactly uh, mentioned it, but was trying to describe it, not not saying that there is an end, that it continues, but in a bend or something like that. Yeah, that's, the, that's the finite but unbounded model, which... I think this is something that Einstein liked and it's something I, I use a lot too. 
only its purpose for me is to describe why particles don't um, come Whoops. apart. They're persistent. He's frozen. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Hello. I think you're you're frozen. Hello. Okay. Everyone was frozen. Wow, that was interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, so yeah, I'm not really sure. I think the internet at uh, the property I'm at went down for just a second. I'm sorry. So uh, we'll we'll move on here. And I didn't catch that, but I do have another interesting. Uh, I didn't catch all that. I don't think. But what uh, contracts Ben's? What will Ben's space time? I think I think that's the question. Yeah, I, that that excerpt I just read was. I, I can say it this way using the super relativity gravity explanation. So the contraction of space, bending the space time uh, is gravity. So gravity is caused by the accelerated motion of fundamental unbalanced charges. When charges move in this way, they cause the space in and around the particle to contract. Gravity is a contraction of the spatial medium. So that's how you bend space time to create gravity. The other one, which I've already explained, the bending of it outwards or the expansion is caused by moving charges uh, in, in wires that create magnetism. Anytime a charge moves, you get magnetism. Magnetism is a rotation of space. And when you cause space to rotate, it stretches. And so space kind of bulges out as a, you know, byproduct of that magnetic field. It's a, it's another effect. It creates a change in the density of space, and that creates the bulging out or the bending outward of space-time. So those are the two ways. There's only so many ways you can bend space. You can bend it clockwise. You can twist it clockwise, counterclockwise. You can stretch it, and you can compress it. That's all you can do with silly putty. That's all you can do with you know any continuous medium that you can imagine. You can stretch it, twist it one way or the other. And, and sure enough, that's what we see uh, when scientists measure particles. They see them rotating clockwise or counterclockwise. And um, and you can stretch space and you can bend it. And that's, that's the basic ways you can affect a three-dimensional space. Interesting. Another question up here is, uh, as far as the travel, I believe that's what Janice is trying to ask here. Would there be any adverse effects on travel in the way that you're speaking? It, it's, you know, the design, it, it's, it, it really is like a, an intelligent design because it bending space by using the slip wave spatial bias drive, which I describe in my book, it makes it possible to break the light speed barrier. And, and if you'll notice that, you know, when these UFOs, make or going a thousand miles an hour in one direction and then make a right turn uh, instantly that would that would be a bone crushing inertial kill for anybody inside the ship uh, the slip wave because it bends space outward eliminates the inertial effect because you're basically weightless inside a ufo so you're basically weightless inside um this interstellar spacecraft that we make. So the only adverse effect that concerns me, it's not anything to do with inertia or gravity or anything like that. It, 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 I worry about time going just a little bit faster 
uh, and you'd have to get into the Lorenz transformation to describe why that would happen. But it's like you're not moving at all, even when you're inside of this bu- bubble going 50,000 times the speed of light. You, relative to space, are almost not moving at all. So time will go a little bit faster, or I should say the clocks that measure time will, which means the particles in your body will be vibrating at higher frequencies. That is a little concerning to me. You might age a little bit faster, but it's probably going to be minuscule, far better than the other way. If we were to not use the slipway spatial bias drive and try to go that fast, we'd be terminated. Um, You couldn't do it. Your spaceship would flatten into a pancake. Your mass would increase to infinity. You would not survive that. Uh, You have to travel this way using the slipway spatial bias drive. There's a, there was a, a guest I had on way, way back. I'm talking about like 2013 or something like that. Robert Farrell. That was his name. And he, he is he kind of reflected uh, a lot of what you're talking about. And one of them, one of his thoughts was somehow that would be almost like falling. There would almost be like, almost like you'd be falling. So that's why there was never any um, G-force problems. Like it was, um, I forget exactly what he said, but if anyone wants to look it up, I know you'll find his book pretty fascinating, but similar to to what you're you're discussing. I wondered yeah. if you had ever heard of any of its theories. No, no, but it sounds like he was concerned with inertial leakage, which is a problem I've heard that we had when we were building our first spaceships, which of course we don't admit to doing, but we've done. Uh, I'm certain of it. Um, If you are not encased entirely in that slipwave spatial bias drive field, you are not going to be safe. If there is any leakage at all so that there is any coverage area that's open where it's just normal space, if if you make changes in speed, any objects in that area of the spaceship will be, you know, harmed deeply. If your your chest is in an area where there's an inertial leakage coming through the spaceship, it, it'll it'll kill you if you make rapid uh, accelerations or changes. Uh, so that's hmm. important that yeah. you be inside this bubble, all of it, all of your ship, especially when you break the light speed barrier. If you don't, that's very dangerous. That's lethal. So that's, all right. All right. that needs to be designed into the systems. All right, just a, a couple of thoughts also. Like, if you were traveling at these speeds, what about things like um, comets, asteroids, uh, space particles, things like that? How would you possibly uh, avoid these things? That That is a good question. Now, fortunately, between the stars, there's it's pretty much a void. Uh, there's not much out there that we know of. But you know, I've I've worked on that problem. I've thought about that problem because it's it's a tricky beast. Because you can't use radar, you're going to outrun the radar by quite yeah. a bit. So, uh, like coming into our solar system, you want to come in 
not through the plane of the ecliptic, because there's a lot of asteroids, <laughs> lots of things going on there, and you could very easily hit something. And if you're going at half the speed of light, it's still going to be a problem. But what you probably would have to do, what I imagine is done by the U.S. and whoever, other aliens and so forth, is when you get to a solar system, you have to slow down so that you can use radar to scan ahead and plot any objects that are going to be in your way. So once you get it into the solar system, you, you slow down to, let's say, half the speed of light. And you could still get around quite nicely through the solar system at, you know, half the speed of light. Uh, yeah. All right, it might take an hour or two to go to the next planet, but still, that's that's tolerable. You know, not six months, not a year. Uh, just a few minutes to get you know from one planet to the other. So you use radar to dodge all the stuff. There's a lot of stuff around the sun, and and when it's time to go to another star system, you go up at 90 degrees. You know, here's the plane of the ecliptic. All the planets are going around. You don't want to hit any of them. You want to go up, and then away. So you you dodge out all of the stuff that's in there, all the asteroids. So you get to a region of space that's far away from, you know, all the debris, and then you go to light speed. I guess you just hope you don't hit anything. I, what I would do and, first, if I were the United States government, I would send probes, unmanned probes, using these flight paths that I'm suggesting. If they make it there and back without a problem, then it's probably pretty clear. And then you can yeah, go. Yeah, but to things the, don't things move in space all the time, and and some type of motion we may not be familiar with. You know, I mean, a lot of things move like in a counterclock. I mean, a clockwise motion or something like that. And like we're moving right now at like forty thousand miles an hour or something along those lines. Um, so I don't know how you could make a path and that path remain the same. Is what I'm getting at. Well. We already have plotted all the debris around our planet and all the debris or most of the debris that's around, you know, the uh, in the solar system, the asteroid belts and so forth. And what I'm saying is they're all in a path, a plane, a disk together. Like they're, they're mm-hmm. not going like this all over our solar system. They're, you know, basically... Everything is in the plane of the ecliptic. They're they're all in this one uh, elliptical circular area going around the sun. So what I'm saying is you don't blast off into space going through the plane of the ecliptic because you, you're going to hit something. Odds are when you when you get out there. So what you do is you go up 90 degrees from it, away from the plane of the ecliptic where there isn't a lot of stuff. And then you go out to wherever you're going at beyond light speed. So you have to clear out all away from all of the debris that's in our solar system. And that's, to me, the safest way to do it is you, you don't, you know, come off the earth and then, you know, go into the, you know, how we send our, our rockets to from jumping from one planet to another. Uh, they're in the plane of the ecliptic. And, and so you can run into stuff, but. They don't because they're going slow enough, and I suppose they use some, you know, uh, I don't know if they use, they probably don't use radar. They just know there's really, once you get away from the Earth, there isn't much 
going on except through the asteroid belt and and they plotted most if not all of the the rocks that are over there and they probably don't go around that area so um you have to put some thought into your flight path your flight plan definitely speaking of that um say say um all right, I, I have this propulsion that you speak of, and I see a, a star, um, you know, four and a half light years away, and I want to travel to that. How would I know, um, well, not maybe so much know the direction, but how would I know when to stop? I mean, you can't, if, I don't, I don't expect that whatever the craft or whatever it is would have windows that you could look out ahead and then, if it was any type of radar, you mentioned yourself, if you're going 50,000 times the speed of light or whatever, you right. can't really send out a radar signal ahead of you. How would you know, how would you plot your, your course and, and know how to stop? Yeah. I've also given that some thought, I'm, you know, I'm thinking the same things you guys are. <laughs> Those are good questions. Um, if you're going 50,000 times the speed of light, it's going, what's going, what you're going to see if you have a window to look out is complete blackness because mm. the Doppler effect is going to kick in and the light, let's say you point your ship at a star, the light from that star is going to shift to the blue, beyond the blue, beyond purple to gamma ray or whatever, and you're not going to be able to see it. But the light is still coming in in a very compressed fashion. So what you have to have is a special sensor, some special camera or whatever, that still can detect that incoming light, even though it's highly compressed, and then does the math to compute it to make it display on a screen, just sort of like they had in Star Trek. I, you know, at some points they had a screen there, not a window. And so you compensate for the Doppler shift by unshifting it and then making the the, the star visible and any stars visible. Uh, that you're traveling toward. Now, the same thing happens behind you. Everything redshifts to blackness. So when you're traveling beyond the speed of light, uh, 50,000 times, let's say, all you're going to be able to see, if anything at all, is a little like a rainbow effect at 90 degrees. If you look out the windows to the left or the right, there might be a little thin strip of light or stars that are like look compressed there, and you'll see those but that's not going to do you any good for what's coming ahead because it's going to be pitch black. And so you need this conversion system so that it takes the incoming particle light particles that are compressed beyond our visual abilities and then computes the, you know, computes it and changes it and compensates and, you know, mathematically. And then all of a sudden you have a screen where the stars look normal. Uh, It's able to sense them. And, and give you a display so you can see. So it'll be interesting be going that fast and you'll be able to see the star growing as you get there. And, you know, within a half an hour, you'll, 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 you'll actually be able to see it, you know, kind of moving toward you and getting bigger and bigger. That would be very exciting to see, but you'll have to use this special technology to, to enable that uh, viewability. And how, and, yeah. And how would you put on the brakes? Say so you're going that fast. How would you stop? That's a very important question. It's a safety <laughs> problem. <laughs> it's a very important safety issue there. What you have to do, see, inside of that bubble that you're in, 
everything there is experiencing space as if there is almost no space there at all. And so there's very little interaction with it. You basically feel weightless, even though you're going, you know, 50,000 times the speed of light. If that weren't the case, if you weren't in that field, you would be crushed by, you know, inertia and all the other nasty things that would happen to you. But you have to first reverse the field. You can't bring it down. If you bring it down, you're dead. You have to maintain the magnetic fields at all time. It's a direct current kind of a thing here. There's no going to zero current and then going, reversing the current. No, what you do is you reverse the magnets. So the stronger magnet, instead of being at the back of the craft and providing the propulsion to push forward, you make the stronger magnet go at the front of the ship. So you slow the ship down first. And you'll be able to tell because you're using a special sensing screen that's going to be able to give you some sort of a uh, a radar, Doppler radar effect that you can determine, ah, uh, the shift in the compression of that star is slowing down now, the light coming from that star. I know I'm slowing down. Once I've slowed down to a safe speed well below the speed of light, then you can drop the field. But don't do well below the speed of light, not fifty mm-hmm. percent. Not you know. I would say one percent. So you get when you get close to where you're going, then you 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 slow it down. These are good questions because these are things that the aliens obviously have worked out because they're doing it. They're getting here, and they're definitely going beyond the speed of light. So obviously, there is a way to work through these problems. So I've tried to give it some thought as to how Mm -hmm. we could do it. Okay. Our new reality is the screen name to this uh, person. Thoughts on the accumulated effect of time dilation and distance traveled for the viability of space travel. What are your thoughts on that? Well, when you travel at this speed, and I go into time and how it works in the physical reality, and really time is is tied to physical distance. If you don't have a physical distance, then time and speed become, time goes, drops to zero, becomes absolute, and speed goes to infinity. So when you're traveling at this, these very high speeds, basically the time dilation problem goes away. Uh, during normal propulsion where we're using rockets or something, your clock will slow down. It will slow down. And then you'll have the twin paradox problem. Whereas you go out maybe at the speed of light for so much time and come back for so much time, it'll be like no time for you, but two hours, let's say, for the people here on Earth. That's not a good system. We can't use that system. We have to travel like they do on Star Trek in real time. So time becomes absolute at these speeds because you can get there. If it takes you an hour to get to another star system, it'll be an hour on Earth because your clocks will not be affected as long as you stay within the slip wave. So it's it's like absolute real time. Hour for you is an hour for people on Earth. is an hour for people on the other star system. An hour back is just an hour. So if it takes you two hours to get there and back, it's two hours for the people on earth and for you. So this system works perfectly. This is the way it has to work. 
Because if you had the time dilation problem, and it would take you really, if limited by the speed of light, it'd take you like 100 years to get to some star 100 light years away. That's not practical. Uh, we can't yeah. do that. Uh, your lifetime will end before you get there. You have to break let's, the let's, Yeah. I know you're, um, pardon me, I know you explained this before, but since you just brought the term up, let's explain that one more time. Um, and, and maybe I'll try to understand it a little bit better too. Slip wave. Can you explain slip wave? Oh, yeah. That's from my book. That's a discovery I made. It's the way particles move. Uh, in order to understand the unified field theory, you have to understand how particles move and that they don't just have momentum. If you ask a physicist to tell you, well, particles have momentum. Well, where'd they get it from? How did they man- How does a light particle manage to go at the speed of light all the way across the galaxy billions of years and not slow down. We can't build a rocket that does that. We would take all the energy in the world. Yet a light particle does it without rockets and it, and it does it perpetually. So I had to understand uh, there's a term in physics for, for that type of, for understanding motion. It's got to do with kinematics which is a branch of mechanics concerned with the motion of objects without reference to the forces which cause the motion. So the slip wave is the method that I discovered particles use, which is basically the the same. An electrostatic charge is a twist of space. And when you twist space, you cause it to stretch uh, from a little bit at the beginning and a lot at the end. It creates that bubble that I'm talking about, a mechanical pressure. So it's a pressure wave. So particles are pressure waves. So what the slip wave is, is a pressure wave created using magnetic fields. Uh, and, and you create a gradient field where you have m- more of this pushing pressure at the rear end of the ship and, and less at the, at the front end. So the slip wave is a pressure wave field. Uh, and it's the same field that all electrostatic charges use. That means all particles, every particle in the universe moves because there's an internal pressure wave gradient inside of the particle. And that gives the particle a velocity, which is a motion in a particular direction. That's what's needed to make the universe work. And so that's what the slip wave is. And so what I did was I I took that model of how particles move and applied it to building a starship. Because that's the most efficient way to move through uh, space. So that's what the slip wave is. Okay. So, Knights, do um, wouldn't computing or decision-making process, even with quantum computing and um, um, AI interpreter and analysis, be the bottleneck? Not if you're you're using this... Um the the uh, sensor system that I, I I use, and you have to use the technique of, of space travel. You're worrying about computing or calculating something that's coming ahead of you that you might collide into. Well, when you get into a region where there's a lot of stuff, you slow down so that you can use radar and you can use computers to calculate and you plot a course on the fly at that point. But... Um, so there won't be really a bottleneck. There would be if you were trying to calculate stuff coming ahead of you, 
in deep space, which uh, I'm going to say there's probably not a whole lot of stuff out there in deep space. Uh, if there was, then I guess aliens would have a really rough time getting here because they'd be getting killed left and right. So, but we won't know until we send probes out. And what I, I, I would prefer to do, and I would bet you the United States government has done, is first send probes out and see if they hit anything and see if they can make it to Proxima Centauri or Alpha Centauri uh, once they get beyond the solar system without a problem. If they can do that, then it's great. And if there's anything that you visually can see, this scanning system I'm going to talk about will at least pick that up and your computers can easily handle that. But um, mm-hmm. it's oh, a tricky another part. Space travel at this is yeah. dangerous stuff. And it's, you got to design systems that are robust and have redundancy and, and have lots of smarts put into them. So you don't have these problems that we're talking about, which are very good questions that they're coming up with. Yeah. Have we achieved faster than light speed with quantum entanglement? No, no. Quantum entanglement is a, in my opinion, a very misunderstood phenomena, uh, <laughs> phenomenon. Um, it, it, it could get into a lengthy, lengthy discussion, and it's got to do with interpretations or misinterpretations. And no, uh, sci- most scientists will say, there's nothing traveling faster than the speed of light there, but they they kind of bend around backwards and imply it sometimes, but there's nothing moving in, in having to do with quantum entanglement, which is really a kind of an abstract idea rather than a real physical entanglement. So, no, there's no faster than light thing going on with quantum entanglement. Okay. Uh, our lines are open. And uh, Bill is standing by to take your call. And that number is 855-472-5483. Again, as Bill is standing by, if you'd like to ask our guests this evening some questions. Um, So uh, I'm hearing just a little bit of feedback here. Um, There is another question I saw. Have any of these... No, it was up... Has any of these theories been reviewed by someone else? I'm working on that right now. You said you're making, you're doing that paper. It has to happen. I have to move to the next stage, the next phase, which is basically presenting these ideas to scientists. I have somebody already who's willing to, a physicist who's going to review the document that I'm working on right now. I'm going to upload my theory to uh, several, um, uh, which, uh, what do you call it, journals um, that will accept it because I'm not a, a real physicist. I'm not. A, this is so bizarre that I'm in this situation, but it's the way it is. I'm just going to have to go with it. So, uh, you know, I'll upload it to Wikipedia or wherever uh, that I can get this thing put on because it's an actual real theory. It's backed by a book with references and so forth. So, yes, that's something that I am planning on doing. It has to be done. If we're going to move forward, the people in authority are going to have to recognize this. Hopefully I can pull it off, but there's going to be a lot of resistance, I think, because it's my method uses classical physics. It doesn't use quantum mechanics. 
So it's not going to be something that's popular. That's one. Now, thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you hear about some amazing things going on at the skunk works, you know, experimental things like that. Uh, I, I'm wondering, has, I know there's no way to tell, but if any of your theories, if you thought that they may be along the lines exploring, you know, similar ideas. And I'm just wondering if you've ever heard anything about it. Um, I, well, I've read a little bit about it. There's certain people that have kind of come across the magnetism connection. Potlikoff, and uh, I think her name is Ling Ni or Ni Ling. I always get that mixed up. But um, uh, there's a few people that noticed that there's a drop in uh, the weight of things that are uh, suspended above a, a rotational uh, superconducting uh, field or, or there's magnets under the superconductor. So I think that's having more to do with the drop in mass. These are the kinds of experiments that I, I ask people to do in my book. We have to link magnetism to anti-gravity and the way to do it is to surround objects with mass in, the, in intense magnetic fields or, or put these magnetic fields below them and then measure how they become lighter. So we know that we're screening the, or, or, or not screening, but uh, uh, blocking in some way the, the gravitational field from the earth. If we put a magnetic field across here, let's say, and then we have something suspended above, this thing is going to be lighter because the magnetic field is here shielding the gravitational field from getting through the magnetic field. So those kind of experiments got to be done. Have they done it? I bet you they have. I, I, I'm pretty sure the, the United States has done this. And, and what research I've done is I've noticed that the United States Air Force is at every high magnetics lab all over the world. They're mm. also interested in superconducting cable, and they're also interested in very small but very powerful power sources. They invest a lot of money that nobody notices in these areas. So they know they're looking for the same things that I suspected they would be looking for. Uh, better technology for creating powerful magnets. And the way to do that is you need superconducting wire. And so anybody doing that research, they're also interested in. Have they done this? They probably know all of what, if, especially if they reverse engineered UFOs. They know all this stuff already. The physicists there, but that all that is classified. They're not going to talk about that. Why? Simple. Uh, strategic military advantage. He who owns the skies rules the world, basically. If you can fly circles around jets and rockets with these spacecraft, then you own the skies. And so this technology is going to be hush-hush. Anybody discovers a room temperature superconducting material, it's going to get classified. Right, right. Uh, we have someone on the line. We have Frank calling from Baltimore. Frank, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Uh, nice, nice to talk to you, Martin, and your guests. Um, quick question. You. Um, your spacecraft, when you establish this field around it, in order to go so fast, <clears throat> is there any possibility, and you say you're basically in a bubble, that as you move through um, space that material and, and objects in regular 
3D physical space would be shunted or, or somehow uh, move around that, that, that craft. So you wouldn't have to really worry about running into them until you drop below light speed. Would there be a field or something? Uh, yeah, that's also a very good question. I thought of that as well. It's a possibility that smaller um, objects, particles, maybe smaller bits of debris will be shunted by the magnetic field, like the way things are shunted here in the Earth, with the magnetic field and the the solar, um, what do you call it, the uh, aurora and so, so forth. Particles are being shunted in some way. These magnetic fields are pretty par- uh, powerful, so it's possible that we're going to get a shunting effect. And the reason why I do say that is that You'll notice that these UFOs fly way beyond the the speed of sound, yet they do not create a sonic boom. So I due to the shunting phenomena that you're talking about, the air gets rarefied ahead of the um, space of of the UFO as it's flying, and so it prevents the the uh, shock wave, the boom, because there's no pressure buildup. Because you're you're basically thinning the air with the magnetic field as you're as you're flying through the air. So I think the shunting idea is something that is probable as a, uh, an effect that may help protect people when they're flying in deep space. But you know, without any data, without any experiments, it's hard to say for sure. But I, I think you're onto something with that idea. Yeah, um, just to follow up, I, um, regarding the navigation, uh, when you're traveling at these uh, super light speeds, um, I, wonder, I would think the navigation would be really problematic. And I wonder if maybe some of the sightings like the Phoenix Lights and some craft that fly over cities, maybe they have navigational errors when they actually drop out of um, back into, into light speed and they're not exactly where they plan to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. That's a mystery that that one that you're talking about where they're just basically well they're they're over the city, but you can't really it's such a dark night that you can't really see anything but the lights on the edges of the ship, which is something I also witnessed once here right in front of my house in the middle of the night. Uh, I was pretty close to this ship, and I could not see um details i can only see an outline are, are we still on here oh there we go yeah okay um yeah so um i don't know there's, there's a lot of things going on we only see a fringe of what's out there and, and you know we have to draw conclusions based on very little data you know a, a sighting here a sighting there who knows why they're out there maybe they were doing that on purpose to let people see, to raise awareness. <laughs> you could speculate all day long as how these things are, are showing up here and, and why they're why here. They're... <laughs> yeah. I certainly hey, Frank. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for the call, Frank. Hey, gentlemen. Have a good evening. All right, you too. All you too. All right, so I guess Baltimore is popular because we have Another person from Baltimore, Bud, on the line. Bud, welcome to the show. 
Hi, how are you, sir? Um, listen, Mark, I'll just real quick question. Have you ever any had problems with like the CIA or uh, any trying to go through those guys or anything? Any, any of that problems with them? I was hoping nobody would answer, ask that question. <laughs> uh, not really. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't even want to put any kind of, you know, opinion on that. It's just. Okay. No. Um, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you, brother. Have a great evening. Okay. All right. Thanks for the call. Uh, lines are open. Again, that number is 855-472-5483. And here's another question that came up here. Uh, so Knight Stew is just trying to understand this. Um, the theory here, does this cascade effect of space, which would push the craft forward, has anything to do with torsion and or tensor calculating? Well, certainly the um, vortex theory, which is a theory that... Uh, basically says that all particles are basically vortexes or twists of space convolutions. Um, that's a torsion theory, which it's not highly regarded, I think in physics right now, but we're going to have to get back into that because that's the details of how particles are moved are going to come from torsion theory and tensor calculus. Well, tensor fields or tensor equations. That's what I used for the gravity stuff. Uh, Einstein said it would be a rank two tensor. I did not know at the time that he said that when I discovered the equation that I discovered, which by the way is over 300 years old um, or its origins are over 300. Um, but later on, you know, I was wondering, I wonder if the equation that I'm using is a rank two tensor and sure enough, it's actually the prime example of what they call a rank two tensor. So I was really elated when I heard that. So, yeah, uh, there's tensors got to do with that. And this is all about uh, fields and uh, in a continuous space. And continuous is just another word for solid. Solid, by hmm. definition, is something that is continuous. Um, I believe you addressed this earlier. Richard wants to know, your work has not been peer-reviewed, but has any physicist informally critiqued your theories? I think you mentioned something along those lines. Right? Yeah, I have uh, one person already who's a very open-minded gentleman who's agreed to do, and he's a gravity research physicist at a, a major university. So, yes, I, I know I have to do that, and but I'm trying to really carefully write up my document. It's already over 40 pages. I was hoping it wasn't going to be that large, but I have to explain my thinking in great detail and then present the math after I've explained how I got to that math and why I use that math and what that math means. So yes, I do have, and I'm looking for other, scientists to uh, I'd like to be on some of these uh, shows that they have. Uh, so that's yeah. something that I'm scheduling for the future. It's a tough, tough cookie right. to well, crack. <laughs> kind of along those lines, uh, uh, Jennifer was asking if you were going to be at the Tesla tech conference this August in Albuquerque. Uh, not at this time, but I'll look into it. I didn't even know that was, Something that was going on. I love Tesla. That sounds exciting myself. I almost want to go. <laughs> I want to find out more about it. Um, 
Uh, so here's a here's a question. I'm I'm really liking this question from Mary Grace, and that is uh, is the reason why there's no sound is is this type of uh, propulsion um, make any sound? No, because a lot of times people will talk, and myself, my my UFO sighting that was uh, the reason I'm on this show tonight. Um, that craft had absolutely no sound, but moved. And right. uh, so many people talk about the same thing. Um, if if you get close enough, if it's an, there are advanced technologies, and then there's super advanced technologies. The the guys that are only a few thousand years ahead of us and who are doing starship travel, those craft may make a low frequency hum sound. And that's, and that's something you hear occasionally too. Yes. And mm-hmm. and if you have a radio or something, you will hear some sort of a hum or something. That's the current going through the wire and it's being pulsed uh, or mm-hmm. oscillating. And an oscillation mode is, is used when the craft is going very slow. It's just hovering. And you can use an oscillation mode just to hold the, the craft steady uh, above the earth and and you can move very slowly with it, very precise mov- movements. In those cases, you might hear a hum, but when it's cranked up to full speed, <laughs> um, if there's any humming uh, oscillation going on, it's a higher frequency, and it's you're not going to hear anything. It's going to be above the the hearing range at that point, which will be above twenty thousand twenty kilohertz, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg wants to know, have you ever studied the Hutchison effect? And uh, I'm I'm wondering if that's the guy up in Canada. I'm not, I I may be confusing that. Um, And and it's just an anti-gravity type of uh, study the guy was doing. And it supposedly had made some uh, breakthroughs. And and let's see, it looks like, okay, we have, we have about, uh, uh, right about five minutes left just to give you a heads up on that. Um, but now what about, uh, I think within the last few years, there was a study or I want to say a paper that basically um, came out that gravity was more of a wave or, or a wave and a particle or something like that. What are your, what's your uh, reaction to that? Whatever that was. Well, gravity's, uh, gravity can't put out a wave, a ripple, if there's a big enough event like two neutron stars colliding or two black holes colliding. It'll put out a wave through space because the space is a medium, like kind of like water, not exactly. But when those two things collide, there's a, a, a this kind of motion, a rippling motion, a, like an oscillation. And that goes outward like just like a water you know you drop a pebble in the water and that that kind of wave but but that's not the source of gravity that's an effect a massive effect due to the incredibly powerful objects coming together there's you know sometimes they don't just smack together but they go around like this really you know circling each other closer and closer and then they collapse into each other that makes a wave too that is detected by uh, people who are measuring gravity waves and looking for gravity waves, which is something that Einstein predicted and has been confirmed to be true and real. I think this might be one of my first questions from us being over on Twitch. 
So thank you, Ellen. Uh, so Ellen wanted to know, do you have any plans to do lectures anywhere? Yes, uh, but those lectures, they'll be more scientific uh, for certain groups of scientists. Uh, I am planning on doing one eventually for the anti-gravity group and then maybe, you know, going to some of these conferences and stuff once the virus thing starts to clear out a little bit. Um, you know, when it's a little safer to travel, I'm pretty old. I'm 66. So I, you know, I gotta be careful. Um, yeah. so I've been staying at home and doing these shows, which has worked out really good for me, but you know, it's, I need to get out and do shows. And yes, I've, I've prepared a, a very good PowerPoint presentation and, and then, and also this document that I am putting out that will be placed in journals. If you go to my YouTube site or, or, or my Facebook and, and make friends or whatever, I'll, I will update everybody on Facebook, I guess, is the most efficient way to let them know that this document is available and any conferences I go to, and I'll put it on my website too. I was going to the, the one uh, contact in the desert, but that got canceled a couple times in a row. So I gave up, but, um, uh, eventually I'll probably go to that and, and the MUFON one and some of these other things, hopefully, you know, maybe a Ted talk or something one of these days, but I have mm -hmm. to, I got a presentation that I'm working on right now for to do that kind of work. Someone wanted to know, I can't pull it up right now, but they wanted to know, does magnetism, does, can uh, mercury have anything to do with, you know, the mercury properties or mercury vapor or anything like that have anything to do with uh, magnetism or any type it, of effects? If it does, you know, I would have to talk to somebody who studied that more, the material scientist or something. I haven't really looked up, and I, I, I seem to remember some reports, people talking about UFOs and mercury or something coming out of them or whatever, having maybe being mercury or something of that nature. Yeah. Um, I haven't studied it at all. All I know is what I need to generate. Uh, a magnetic field. And if you move that magnetic field, you enhance its power and strength. And maybe with mercury rotating in some way, it has an effect uh, on the magnetic field that enhances it. It's possible, but I haven't really studied that and I haven't read anything that makes sense to me in that way or anybody's speculated about that at all. But I, I've heard mercury in conversation okay. before. Great. Well, let's uh, let's quickly. We're out of time here, so let's quickly throw out your your website. Okay, it's www.super-relativity.com, and my book you is on Amazon, Very and good. it's on my website. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck, and hey, you never know, a breakthrough can come from someone they would least expect, and there's this book. All right. Okay. All right, Mark. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right, everyone. So don't forget next week we have Lou Elizondo on and uh, formulate your questions for chat. But also I think I might open up the phone lines a little bit earlier. Um, you can also send me some email questions for Lou um, if you'd like. It should be an interesting show. And I hope to see everyone back there. And thank you all for tuning in this evening. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.